things will inevitably go wrong. Even the best of our companies, there's a hiccup here and there and a minor pivot in what allows them, I think, to persevere is this sense of something greater in purpose. I think it's really difficult to be a great investor without a deep set of expertise. And in fairness, you see that even in the journalist funds, right? People tend to specialize. But when you have the benefit of truly developing deep expertise across only financial services, you have the luxury of going very deep across many subsectors and to understand how they interrelate and where the dependencies are and where things break down. So many of our companies have had to build the infrastructure stack as well because they didn't have the luxury of kind of, you know, embedding other solutions into theirs. And so that's been really phenomenal to see both as an opportunity for innovation, but also as like a real high bar. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. My guest today is Emmeline Shaw, Managing Partner at Flourish Ventures, a global fintech focus fund with over $850 million in assets under management. Flourish is also a permanent capital vehicle that aims to back companies that can create systemic change and help build a more fair financial system. Some of their investments include Chime, Neon, Alloy, Flutterwave, Baga, and Camino. We discussed lessons learned after almost 25 years in venture capital, why specialized funds can deliver big wins and returns, what it means to be a mission-driven entrepreneur and why they love investing in them, the strategy that has allowed Flourish Ventures to invest around the world, and a lot more. Emily, and so you got started, correct me if I'm wrong, as an investment banker. How did you get started in, in our world? Because you, you didn't start in VC proper, right? You, you, you were doing some other type of work, but also in the financial industry. Yes, yeah. No, so just for context, I grew up in Huntington Beach, so I'm a California person through and through, Southern California. But I really, my love for technology actually started in college. So I wanted to be financially independent, chose a school locally where I could get a, you know, merit-based scholarship, but I had to pay for my housing. So I ended up at Berkeley and I worked for Apple. So I started, that's where I fell in love with tech. So I worked for Apple on campus, marketing, worked for the summers full-time in marketing. And then I was a math and econ major and there was a PH, a company called uh, Bara that did portfolio analytics software. So it's like the first incarnation of fintech. And I worked as a product manager for two years there. So that really is where I fell in love with tech, the convergence of tech, and actually in financial services at the time. And then after that, after Cal, I ended up working at Morgan Stanley in the tech group on Sand Hill Road. So I really kind of continued my passion for tech. And that was in the 90s. And this will definitely date me, but I worked on the Netscape AOL merger. And Jim Barksdale and Peter Curry, and that was like in late 98, they decided to launch their own venture fund, Jim Barksdale in particular, called the Barksdale Group. And so it was like a $200 million early stage fund. 
myself, Danny Reimer from Index, you might know, Peter Curry, CFO, a group of us started the Barksdale Group, and I got recruited out from Morgan Stanley. So January 1st of 2000 was my first day in venture, and it continues to this day. So it's been a long journey. It's been almost 23 years, but it's been an incredible one. So yeah, that's what kind of got me into tech and then ultimately to investing. You mentioned San Ale Road. That means a lot of things for a lot of people. What did it mean to you just San Ale Road in the 90s, early 2000s? And what does it mean to you today? <laughs> That's a really good question. You're right. It did have a lot of meaning back then. And definitely, I think that was really where the source and the heart of innovation and technology and investing in venture was. And you know, you see remnants of it even today with so many firms still having some roots there. But by and large, it has shifted pretty measurably, not just out of you know Silicon Valley, but quite frankly, out of California in some cases, right? You've seen a much broader proliferation into many other pockets, whether that's Southern California and New York and and quite frankly, and I'm pleased to see also even kind of, you know, the, the mid states throughout the US. And that to me has been a wonderful transition. And then obviously there's the international piece that we will hopefully talk about that has also been quite vibrant. That at the time, really most of the venture community and a lot of the work in technology admission was really happening at that core on Sand Hill Road in the heart of Silicon Valley. Yeah, it, it didn't exist. The, the international VC market. No, not really. Not of any, not any consequence. Yeah. 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 I, I was actually looking at the numbers a couple of days ago. Carta kind of released industry by industry for the US, where are the top industries being funded? And fintech, for example, New York is number one. I mean, SF is a close second. Let's not pretend, you know, it's SF is going away, but it has clearly shifted. And so that, so that sounds like that is one important change that you've seen over the last couple of decades of your career in VC, the geographical shift. But what have been some of the other key changes that you've observed? Yeah. And I would quickly just say that the the fintech element in particular, just given that so much of the financial services are based in New York, it does make more sense that there is there has been more. But I feel like even in the last five years, there's been a real movement from, to your point, California, so in Silicon Valley to New York as well, specifically around fintech. I think, you know, there's been a lot of if you look over 23 years, a lot of shifts have happened. So certainly, you know, the emergence of kind of the accelerator piece with, where that's YC and 500 and the like, I think that was a pretty measurable shift in kind of the mid to late 2000s to create that structured class. And then to see a lot of these really vibrant pre-seed and seed funds come into the floor was, I think it's also been really incredibly helpful for the earliest stage entrepreneurs. It's also been helpful to kind of expand that asset class to a broader reach better terms, et cetera. I think in addition, you're seeing, and I would say in the last 10 years in particular, fintech, but I think more broadly, the emergence of a lot of the founder-led, executive operator-led funds that are really leaning into particularly the earliest stages to be hands-on, I think have also been a really wonderful addition to kind of the, the tech ecosystem at large, but certainly in fintech in particular. Some of that's coming from wealth creation and the ability to then invest back into the ecosystem and to serve as mentors in a much more meaningful way, which I love to see. There, There's always been kind of vertically focused funds, even back in 2000. They tended to be more, you know, clean when clean tech was kind of the first iteration of clean tech that kind of emerged and healthcare and, and others have been in place. But I feel like in the last 10 years, again, 
much more vibrant, growing, dedicated vertical funds have really surfaced and continue to thrive. And that's been exciting to see. I think that also really validates this idea that you're very thematically driven and you're, you're deep knowledge in a particular sector and you have a lot of value at to add and disproportionate kind of insights and deal flow, et cetera. So that's exciting to see. And certainly, obviously, we love that given that's Flourish's focus. There's been a lot more in diversity. I think, you know, again, I we talk about geographical diversity, which is a wonderful thing, and and regional diversity and seeing a lot of capital flowing across regions. But we're also seeing more diversity kind of among the investor base. It's not at the level I'd still like to see, but I'm I'm excited to see the movement. I think it's been quite noticeable over the last 20 plus years. And I'd like to see more at the more senior levels. I think, again, you know, it's wonderful that we have the funnel, but to see that. And then I would say there's a lot more thought leadership. And I think that's something that, Miguel, you're, you're a huge proponent of here on your podcast. And I think that has really helped provide more perspective on the industry, keep many, many folks globally abreast of trends. Um, that was not the case. It was much more siloed. The knowledge bases were more siloed. The access to CEOs were more siloed. And I think we're just in a different era where there's so much more knowledge exchange and a real movement towards collaboration that is really phenomenal to see. And I think everyone as an ecosystem, particularly in fintech, benefit from that willingness to kind of cross-pollinate and learn from each other. And there's a a lot more humility, I think, particularly in fintech that I really, really appreciate. Yeah, to your point on the, I guess, dissemination of information, the democratization of information, I hear from founders who listen to the podcast and they are in non, not just non-fintech hubs, but non-tech hubs. And I'm one of several podcasts and, and media outlets that they tap to kind of learn about the industry. And you talk to them and they're just as well-versed as you know, someone in New York. So the resources are clearly there. You mentioned the emergence of specialized funds. And so you and I live in the world of fintech, and we're going to talk about that, but we're seeing SaaS funds, we're seeing climate tech funds, you, know, you name it, health tech. What have you learned about building a specialized fund rather than being a generalist? Yeah, I think there is there's such an importance. I think I think it's really difficult to be a great investor without a deep set of expertise. And in fairness, you see that even in the journalist funds, right? People tend to specialize. But when you have the benefit of truly developing deep expertise across only financial services, you have the luxury of going very deep across many subsectors and to understand how they interrelate and where the dependencies are and where things break down. And I would go as far as to say part of the reason I'm proud that we built a global fund was because we not only have that visibility in the US, we have that visibility globally. And it's not to say there aren't differences across regions. Of course there are, but there's also some similarities. And when they do hold, there's some really powerful cross-learning. And you can only do that if you start to really deeply specialize and you build an ecosystem that's very specialized and you you, you know learn and develop partners that are very specialized. And that feeds such a powerful ecosystem, both domestically, but also internationally. And so I think the importance in doing that is really making sure you've got the right type of employees, you've got the right type of culture, and you have to have the right type of presence, like local presence to really enable that to happen in, in a successful way. So you, you've kind of measured something that I talk about often, I hear about is Yes, you are investing in multiple countries and geographies, but you can do that because you're specialized in fintech. So you speak the same language, 
as a founder in Nigeria versus Brazil and, and the US, because at the end of the day, the language is about, you know, fintech, you know, and then it's, <laughs> yeah. tell us about that, that the global approach. I really, really love that. I always mention how I grew up around the world, moving around the world every three to four years. And so I just love building something that is global and, and pays attention to all the trends that happen in different places, because then they, they start connecting. Yeah. Well, what's been your approach to building a global firm? Well, first of all, you've done a great job, I think, really representing this, this broader footprint. So I, you know, I know we're always looking for partners who think like us, you know, so just for context, you know, we are now $850 million, right? AUM, early stage, seed, series A, and half our capital is deployed in the US and the other half is across various targeted emerging markets. So India, Africa, Latin America, other parts of Southeast Asia. Part of our focus, as you know, is we not only want to back disruptive companies, venture return companies, but also they have to drive impact. And the impact that we hope to see is a better improved financial system that serves consumers better, businesses better, et cetera. And so against that mandate, we're looking for, and against those themes, we want to make sure we've got local teams present specifically in those regions. So in at Brazil, in Africa, in Egypt, and, and I think in India, India, and having the ability to build deep ecosystems and co-partner deeply with a number of those co-investors and build portfolio companies that also serve to keep us abreast of those. And then similarly in the US, obviously, we've got a very big team there as well. And the purpose is really, it's not, again, to be able to learn and develop. Th we're very thematic because, you know, again, we're only investing in venture. So you're focused on very strong themes, some of which transcend again, and some do not. But we have really deep theses around how do we want to push the agenda and where do we see the similarities and where do we see transformation happening? So we've been very deliberate about the types where we place people that they're on the ground, that we're able to actually meet as a team and de develop themes that we can share and learn from one another, and that our portfolios are also connected, right? The companies themselves, the entrepreneurs themselves have deep connectivity and are able to also bounce ideas off each other, which as you can imagine, whether that's go to market, whether that's international expansion, whether that's adjacent product extensions, having the eyes and ears of other folks who may have done that in other geographies have been really, really powerful. And so sounds like you're paying a lot of attention to your local partners because some of the themes that are being developed in the US today, for whatever reason, there might not be relevant in India, right? At the same time, how does that investment process work for you internally, right? Does the local partner have final say or do you have a global IC? Curious, how have you structured it? You know, I would say you're right. There are certain themes, like for example, one area early on, we developed a thesis around challenger banks, right? And we saw the unbundling happening. We saw the opportunity to provide really rich services. But you're right, fundamentally, different regulatory regimes and by extension, underlying business models didn't exist in some. It wasn't, it was the case that digital banking was needed. The question is, is it going to be interchange like with Dodd-Frank and Chime, or is it going to be lending? Because that's a more common business model that is afforded for based on, you know, what the regulatory regime. And so I think, we were able to actually, in that context, have like eight challenger banks globally that made a lot of sense that have all thrived in different ways, but with slightly different underlying business models. So there are times in which they definitely transcend geographies. And then there are other times for which, you know, lending is probably a good one where there might be much more need and value proposition for 
kind of specific lending, small business lending in emerging markets, whereas maybe it would show up very differently in the U.S. And so, yes, in those contexts, we would have very much more thematically driven area focus as to why a certain business model and a certain go-to-market strategy would make sense, right? A different embedded solution, for example. The way we operate is, again, I think part of myself and the other two managing partners that co-founded the fund, we are deeply connected. We, we, We do separate. I focus on the U.S. My other colleague focuses on India, and the other one focuses on kind of Brazil and Africa. And the idea is that we collectively are staying abreast of everyone's global deals. So we have that global landscape. And so our investment committee comprises of ourselves and a couple of other folks at the leadership level that allow us to have the continued learning as well as pushing because we do have, we all have different perspectives in terms of what business models have been successful in other markets and pushing on the kind of the foundational thesis around well, why is this going to be successful in this market? What do you what do you need to believe to be true in order for that to happen? And so we actually find having that vibrant conversation across geographies is actually a much more fruitful exchange because half the battle, right, is understanding what risks you're adopting when you go into a deal. And so I think having thought leadership there would be is, is helpful. And when it comes to the entrepreneurs that you're partnering, something that I've heard you and your team say is that you're looking to partner with mission-driven entrepreneurs, founders. What does that mean? Yeah. They are entrepreneurs for whom success is not dictated solely by the success of their company or their, their own personal wealth, but a greater good, a greater outcome, an outcome that's, that extends well beyond that. And that notion of a North Star, I think, is really powerful. It, it not only kind of helps build a lot of resilience and clarity and humility for a lot of these entrepreneurs, because things will inevitably go wrong. Even the best of our companies, there's a hiccup here and there and a a minor pivot. And and what what allows them, I think, to persevere is this sense of something greater in purpose. And I find that they're also able with that vision and strong articulation to be able to recruit some of the best talent because there's some mission behind it. And so that's often what the way we think about our entrepreneurs. And it's a really important screen. I would say that screen not only applies to our entrepreneurs, it applies to our employees. It's probably the single greatest screen that we apply across the board. Yeah, I love that. I wonder what is your approach to measuring, right, whether these founders are truly mission-driven, like to measure their level of passion for what they're doing before you make the investment, before you, you actually partner, join their board, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously not an easy process. No, but I find there are often the problem they're trying to solve is very personal. It's not always the case. So you can really tell just from their own personal story how how it aligns and why the vision was articulated. And I think that really helps understand, like, is this something that is, you know, being verbalized, but really not true to heart, or if it's actually something really deeply felt and committed to. Similarly, you know, it's it, it's hard to pretend to be mission-oriented. You can't just decide one morning I'm mission-oriented. You actually have to have somewhat live that life in some other capacity in your prior roles. And so that is much easier to determine, right? To, through a number of off-reference checks, just understand, like, how does this person operate in the world? Does he or she show up in a way that is aligned with kind of this mission orientation? And in his prior or her prior roles, even if it wasn't mission-oriented per se, how what type of leader was this person and what ultimately dictated their sense of kind of success and outcomes? And I think, again, that's those are easier to measure. And 
again, not exactly direct, but nevertheless, a very strong indicator of could you be a great, strong, mission-oriented and driven leader? Let's talk a bit about, and we were talking earlier about have you seen the industry evolve? I also wonder some of the lessons that you've collected along the way, inevitably, we all, you mentioned companies, but also investors, you know, run into tough situations. Maybe you would love for you to share maybe some mistakes, lessons you you've experienced along the way. Yeah, you mean in venture, just in, in the, <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> I would say that one common mistake is really not trusting your gut. I think you do develop, uh, particularly over a long period of time, a sense of what might work. And it's neither, it's not black or white. It's just a question of, is this a good working relationship for you? Is this going to be something where you two together as a partnership, because it is a partnership, can be successful? And can you help guide him or her in the best way possible and the, the kind of the investment structure, what whatnot in the best way possible. And if your gut or something is kind of a red flag, I think really trying to like listen to it and make sure that you don't fall in love, overly fall in love with the idea or the market opportunity at the expense of, I think, the red flags that we we often have. And so I think some of my biggest mistakes are when I have, if I reflect back, it's like, oh, I know I had that concern. I actually wrote it down. I'm very diligent about like writing down what I think are potential risks. And I think I just underweighted or some of those in a way that upon reflection were just not listening enough to those red flags. That's probably one. I think as a board, it's really important to appreciate the board dynamics. And so, you know, early on in my career, not fully appreciating how important it was to build kind of the relationships with each board member. And again, not the intent is not to become best friends, although that can happen as well, but it's more often building that foundational trust and transparency and a sense of what, what, you know, where you guys align and where, what success looks like. And I think the reason for that is when things go wrong, which again, inevitably it does, you really, that foundation is critical and having that relationship is super critical. So that's another area where I think, you know, just dedicating that time and the energy up front. I would say with early stage companies, you know, co-founder dynamics can often be really tough. And and I see that actually even in, in other organizations, leadership organizations I'm part of where I'm with founders all the time, as well as portfolio as well. And I do think as an investor, really tuning into how those are going, checking in proactively, understanding what tools, whether that's leadership coaches, et cetera, to really help solidify how those dynamics can continue to grow, particularly as a company scales and, and just helping the founder think through it. Because often there's such deep, close relationships, sometimes personal relationships. And so they become very challenging as the company experiences their ups and downs. But I would say those three are areas where I was like, yeah, in retrospect, I would dip, spend more time here because so I can be more helpful to the business and the company. Yeah. Yeah. On the co-founder dynamics, I know there are firms that, for, for example, do not back a team if the co-founders haven't worked together before or haven't known each other for a while. But I think we've also seen examples where, you know, they just met and found their dating and it works, right? What has been your experience seeing specifically that dynamic? Yeah, I wouldn't say there's any correlation between whether they've worked together or not. I've seen both instances where they've been incredibly successful. The most important is understanding what each brings to the table and having, and I think honestly, the most important is how do you continue to develop a relationship and grow through the, the difficult times, whether or not you have a pre-existing personal relationship. And so really trying to help that. In fact, recently, uh, you'll appreciate this, we actually uh, had some five of our portfolio companies in LATAM, in Brazil in particular, and brought together a leadership coach 
and they worked only with founding teams. And they worked in separate teams together to kind of work through difficult conversations and and just, you know, frameworks on how to address things from strategy to more challenging issues that surface. And it, it was really well received. And we just did this recently. But something that I think we want to do more broadly, because we see the importance of it, particularly at the earliest stages for portfolio companies. And they continue this it's complex, it's a complex relationship, as is most of you know the board dynamics as well. So important to invest in. I'm going to ask you for the contact of that coach longer. Although <laughs> I think many companies would love to meet them. And so something I wanted to ask you about is unlike private equity, right, where most of the time a firm comes in and makes an investment all by themselves, or maybe they'll work with another investor. In venture capital, you end up working with multiple <laughs> firms, right? At a seed round, you, you can have five funds come in, you know, obviously there'll be bigger ones and there'll be the smaller ones. Out of the funds that you have worked with and have really admired and, and seen grow, you know, what have you observed that really distinguishes an investor? I would say, first of all, that, you know, one thing I've really been so impressed with fintech as a whole in the ecosystem is just how open and, and warm and like welcoming folks have been. It feels like it's, there's just, there's real desire for continued growth and partnership. And I think that says a lot about why the fintech ecosystem has evolved and flourished the way it has. I would say that. And I, I mean that truly sincerely having watched general tech and it's not to say general tech isn't the same, but I think fintech has a very unique um, receptivity and a real like res mutual respect for what everyone has to bring to the table, whether that's operators or investors, et cetera. I think among the co-investors and, and this is probably speaks a little bit more to just me personally. I, I really appreciate, there's a lot of smart folks. The folks that we've been, we found to be the best co-investors have a real high sense of, e high sense of EQ, highly like humble in the greatest sense of the word, collaborative, open, a real desire to roll up our sleeves together and see that as kind of a joint effort. And I think the sharp elbows just don't seem to exist as broadly in fintech anyway, but I would say that, you know, there's just a really great like team mindset overall. Obviously they need to be smart and thoughtful and all that good stuff, but that goes without saying. It's really in my mind, a lot more of the softer skills that have really created what I think is the most successful outcome so far. And if I look at the companies that we've been fortunate to work with, those syndicates have been represent that ethos. And it sounds like that's also what you look for in your team, right? T tell us a, a little bit about growing a team because, uh, you know, building a, a venture capital fund, an investment firm, that's also building a company and you, you, you hire a lot slower than, <laughs> but you know, it's a similar exercise, you know, and I've actually met many folks that have been through your team over the years and now are doing exciting things. So how do you think about building a team? Yeah, I think for us, it's actually surprisingly easy to find, you know, deep fintech experience or venture experience. I think it's probably harder to make sure that they have a real appreciation for what we're trying to do in this ecosystem and the role that we want to play. And so we're often looking first and foremost for that alignment. Like, do you understand, do you want to see the financial system improve? Do you believe technology fundamentally has the opportunity to do that? Do you have excitement around partnering with entrepreneurs for whom that is a really important core part of their mission? And I think against that framework, then we find that, you know, we, 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 try, we really are very thoughtful about looking for folks who really adopt that and 
can lean into that ethos. And that, that's why I think we've been pretty picky. And thank you for saying that we've got some amazing folks. And, and part of it is not you know like venture. Venture is always, it's a vehicle. Not everyone's going to stay in venture and be a long-time venture capitalist. The goal is to actually have them be, have learned so much, hopefully as part of this platform to be an incredible contributor and hopefully stay within fintech and continue to allow all of us to continue to learn and push the agenda, whether that's on the operating side or, you know, as a global investor, et cetera. So it's been, it's been really fun to not just grow the folks within, but to also grow folks and have them continue to be vibrant in the community and for the portfolio. But yeah, I think that's probably been the most interesting. I would also say that, say that you know, we're a little bit different. 10% of our capital is deployed in what I characterize as more like ecosystem related work, right? So, you know, fintech is regulated. <laughs> it's not like general tech where you can just out innovate to your heart's content. Like you have to live within constructs. You actually have to understand what those regulatory impacts are. You have to um, partner deeply with the regulators and thought partners. And so we actually have folks focused on policymaking that are really looking at understanding and working and backing folks like Joanne Barefoot and Fred Ayer, who's thinking about the tech sandboxes for policymakers, having conversations are what it means to regulate fintech. And I think that that piece, as well as media, we're actually very much looking at ways in which the conversation around financial literacy, financial health, what it means to be financially healthy across the US and even globally, we're, we've actually backed a number of different, very different form factors from podcasts to comedy shows, et cetera, all around that narrative, because we, we it continues to be kind of an unspoken dialogue. And so in that small amount of our capital that gets deployed there, we are we have to find individuals that can really serve and can do to catalyze that effort. And that's a very different person than a traditional venture capitalist. But it, but it, I find that, again, that core tenet of do you really, do you want to transform financial services? Uh, are you passionate about it? And can, can you, do you get excited about working within the ecosystem to really affect that change? So it's been really fun to, to partner with what I think is a very diverse set of individuals, all of whom are trying to attack a very strong North Star and been really proud about what we've been able to do so far. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you're not just investing in founders, but you're actively trying to strengthen the ecosystem, right? All both in the U.S. and outside the U.S. And you have been investing in, for example, Brazil. That's a place that's very close to my heart. But you've been investing in Brazil for, you know, a long time, right? Before everyone was talking about it. That's also a place where the ecosystem, by the ecosystem kind of, developing itself and strength and becoming a, a stronger kind of self-sustaining ecosystem. Now we're seeing a bunch of founders come in, right? Maybe tell us a bit about your your experience in Brazil. I know you don't cover specifically Brazil, you're, you're responsible for the US, but you are close to the country. Yes, no, absolutely. Look, I would say that it, you know, for all the reasons that you're seeing interest in the market um, from a business perspective, I think that is allowed for a lot more activity. So later stage, the exit opportunities, you know, you're seeing a lot more of that momentum that validates that there's real opportunity to continue to deploy. Our perspective has always been like, this is a market, it's a massive market, right? There has, they, they have always been much more, as we, as we kind of alluded to, much more friendly as embracing technology and, and regulation and fintech regulation in a way that I think has been powerful. And you see that evidence through PICS, you see that evidence through the public infrastructure and the desire not only to create infrastructure that enable a lot more innovation, right? And a lot more access, but also the way in which fintech companies are regulated within Brazil. And I think that has been a huge boon and a huge opportunity for innovators to come in and really think about how to disrupt and modernize 
core parts of the value chain and really extract economic value. And so, you know, whether that is with, you know, Neon looking at kind of the, the challenger bank asset, particularly focused on kind of that low to medium population that quite frankly still remains highly underserved and using technology to do that or swap where, you know, we're really creating the infrastructure, right? The kind of, and, and I would say in Brazil in particular, there, you know, in the US, there's like, you pretty much have siloed solutions. You have a Galileo, and then you might have a banking as a service, and you might have a bank. In Brazil, you actually have to build so much of that holistically, right? So, so many of our companies have had to build the infrastructure stack as well, because they didn't have the luxury of kind of, you know, embedding other solutions into theirs. And so, that's been really phenomenal to see both as an opportunity for innovation, but also as like a real high bar. It's like, it's not inconsequential to build an entire infrastructure stack on top of a, maybe a, a customer facing solution. And, and and I think, you know, Swap and others on the infrastructure side have really benefited the need for that type of solution. So it's been really phenomenal. Yeah. 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 I mean, Ben Gleason always talks about having to build everything in-house for his initial company Gib also I think he and David had to build the CRM and you know some very basic things that founders in the US take for granted. So and before we wrap up, you mentioned a few names with whom you started your venture career. Uh, I was wondering when you look back who have been some of the most helpful and I guess consequential people in your journey. I would probably put them in kind of slightly different buckets. I would say on the traditional venture side, there are probably two folks who I feel just for different reasons. When I was at Oak for a number of years, Fred Harmon was a phenomenal, Andy Lamont as well. But Fred is who I worked with most deeply, particularly on the software side, and just a phenomenal human being, just a high degree of humility, very thoughtful, strong track record, but also led the firm with such integrity and really built a culture that was important. So as I think about my role as a leader within Flourish and the, the, the culture I want to see as well as kind of the track record and performance that I want to see personally and as a team. I think it's been really wonderful to watch. And he was a great role model there. Similarly, John Callahan, who founded True Ventures, very much kind of created that founder first mentality, a very early stage generalist investor. But, and I think that that was, that to me was really instrumental in the way in which we operate with our founders. And, and I think that has been kind of an important premise in, in terms of our ethos. I would say on the personal side, I would say, probably my husband. He's by far the, probably the best, you know, we have six kids together and it's been a beautiful journey. And then trying to balance work and life and how to do that in a way that's authentic, but be the very best version professionally. I think he's been a wonderful role model there. And then finally, I would say, I don't know if you're familiar with YPO, Young Presence Organization. So I've been fortunate to be part of Golden Gate for a long time here in the Bay Area. And it is just a great it's been such a wonderful um, network for me of folks, you know, like-minded executives who are have different experiences and walks of life, but we have a sh- shared kind of experience with running businesses, with family, and and that, and having an, a forum to really share deeply and explore difficult topics with in a confidential setting has been really important, both helping folks as well as sharing my own, and and that to me has been just an incredible personal, both personal and professional growth opportunity. So not one, not two, not three, but six kids. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> you have to be great at time management. Either that or just um, forgetting a child or embracing mediocrity, one or the other. I, I, I like to think I was better at time management, but I can't guarantee that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Emily, thank you so much. We've covered a lot of ground. It's great learning about your career. It's certainly inspiring to me, and I'm sure it's going to be inspiring to a lot of the listeners. And 
yeah, but I look forward to continuing to collaborate and work together. Absolutely. And it's just such a pleasure to spend time with you. So thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Emmeline from Flourish Ventures. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly, truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.